2: Plush dot com Slash Weight Loss.
3: From the blackest corners of your mind, they call. Pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. children of the night, and welcome. The end is near, dear listeners. The clock has nearly struck midnight, and the doors on our flash fiction contest have begun to creak closed. You've got until midnight on February the 28th, that's this Sunday, to dot your I's, cross your T's, and scrawl perhaps the two most satisfying words for a writer to pen. The end. Then submit your macabre masterpiece to us. As of this recording, we're just shy of 50 entries. Thanks and best of luck to everyone who's entered. And for those of you sadists who love a good challenge, you've still got time to bring your horrid creation to life and send it our way. I'm sure you know the drill by now. TalesToTerrify.com slash FlashContest has everything you need to know. This week, I'd like to give a shout-out to a few unsung heroes who support the show through PayPal. Asger Sporing, Teresa Spitz, and Edwin Thomas. Thanks for helping to breathe life into our devious tales each week. And for any other listeners, if you'd like to back our podcast, help us feed the twisted and disturbed minds of our writers and seek out the most dreadful and disturbing tales we can find. You can do that either through PayPal or Patreon. You can access both on our homepage, TalesToTerrify.com. One more thing I'd like to mention before we move on this week. Our good friends at Dark Matter Magazine are mere moments away from releasing their second issue. I had the pleasure of checking out a few previews from issue two, and it looks like it's going to be a hell of a ride. So, if you're into dark science fiction, which, let's face it, is the best kind of science fiction, I highly encourage you to pick it up. Check out darkmattermagazine.com to see what's in store for Issue 2, or to subscribe, so you don't miss a word. Well, what do you say, children of the night? Have we loafed around enough? Are your laurels rested? Have you taken a bathroom break? Stocked up on snacks and puffed up your travel pillow? I hope so, because we're finally gassed up and good to get back on the road this week. I figured we'd pick up where we left off, in the frozen north. More specifically, we're going to visit the youngest of Canada's provinces and territories, Nunavut. You might want to put on an extra sweater for this one, though, children of the night because King William Island, off Nunavut's northern shore, can be a deadly cold place this time of year. The wind had begun to pick up, driving sharp icy flakes sideways, like thousands of miniature daggers into her face. But she ignored the discomfort and continued to run, as fast as she was able through the drifting snow never slowing to catch her breath or tug her hood close around her face. Dark shapes loomed through the whiteness, then coalesced into low-domed structures. Without hesitation, she ran straight for the largest igloo, threw aside the hide covering the entrance, and dove inside. Something's coming, she panted, face red with cold and exertion. Or someone. They're not Inuit. They're not human. Her voice trembled, and the fear in her wide eyes was reflected in those of the others who'd gathered in the little dwelling. Women, children, and one elderly man. The rest of the village men had left earlier that day on the seal hunt and wouldn't be back for hours. They gave her a moment to catch her breath everyone else in the igloo holding their own while she did. What did you see, child? One of the older women finally asked. Eight or nine figures, she described. They looked like people, but also not. They moved unnaturally, shuffling and lurching. Their eyes were hollow, and they were pale, so pale their skin looked blue. They were perfectly silent, too, except for the crunch and scuff of their feet through the snow. They'd emerged from the snow without warning. One moment she was alone, and the next she was surrounded by strange, skeletal faces. How they didn't notice her, she wasn't sure, but she managed to slip free of them and run back to camp. But they couldn't be far behind. The silence hung for a moment as her story washed over them. And, as if right on cue, there came the sound of shuffling footsteps crunching through the snow from the edge of camp. A woman gasped, and one of the children began to cry, but was quickly shushed by her mother. The steps grew closer, and the occupants of the igloo exchanged terrified looks. They backed away from the entrance, pressed against the cold ice of the far wall, mothers hugging their children close. And then the old man, who had sat silent and all but forgotten on the furs at the far end of the igloo, came forward. Without a word, he reached a frail hand for the flap of the door and shoved out into the billowing snow. As he emerged from the igloo and straightened, he went instantly still. Mere inches from his own was the hollow, blue-tinged face of a corpse. Ice had formed thick around its mouth and nose, and dropped from its pale brow like stalactites, further shadowing the dark hollows of its eyes. The creature didn't speak didn't make a sound, didn't move, except for a gentle sway as the icy wind battered it from behind. There were other figures further back, too, similarly gaunt and haunted-looking, bobbing and swaying like strands of kelp in a gentle current. Even though the face was close to his, the creature didn't seem to see the old man, didn't seem to register his presence. And while the creature's chest seemed to rise and fall, only the barest wisp of mist passed from its lips out into the frozen air. Its arm was outstretched. The palm of a gloved hand lay flat on the outside of the igloo, inspecting it, caressing it. The old man reached out a shaking, gnarled hand, and placed his palm against the pale skin of the creature's cheek. It was so cold. Not ice-cold, but not the warmth of living flesh, either. I've never in all my life seen a devil or any kind of spirit, said the old man once he'd re-entered the igloo. I've heard the sound they make, but I've never seen them with my own eyes. These are beings, yes, but they're not Inuit. I think, though, he added, I think they're alive. With some coaxing, he convinced a few of the women to come outside with him. The thing had scarcely moved from where it stood, and once it became clear that it posed little or no harm, they invited the creatures inside to come out of the cold and warm themselves by the fire. But the strange beings simply stared with knitted icy brows. The Inuit gently tried to guide them inside, but the strangers wouldn't accept shelter. They shrank away from the touch, timid, almost fragile. When the Inuit tried to encourage them to set their belongings down and rest, they grabbed possessively at their packs and chied away. And despite their clearly emaciated state, even when the Inuit offered freshly cooked meat, the few creatures that did accept spit the food out as soon as they'd bitten it and dashed the broth they were offered in the snow. When the men of the camp finally arrived back from the hunt, they were shocked to find these frozen corpses standing around their home. And after some discussion with the old man and the women, the men set to building an igloo for the strangers to stay in. Inside they lined with furs and built a warm, roaring fire. And with some coaxing, they managed to get the strangers to accept the igloo and settle down inside. While the men had built and prepared the igloo, The women had roasted the day's catch, butchering and preparing the seal meat. They gave three whole seals' worth of meat to the strangers, and then left them to sleep. A calm night settled in over the camp, and as the sounds of shuffling movement from the strangers' igloos subsided, the Inuit crept from their own igloos. They packed up their possessions, what they could take with them, loaded their sleds and fled the camp by moonlight. Whatever these creatures were, they were bad omens, and probably dangerous. Whether they were human or not, there was something not right about them, something that sounded warning bells in the minds of the Inuit. Even if these creatures were indeed alive, there was no question. What they brought with them was death. The Inuit traveled southwest and eventually set up a new camp, a safe distance from the old one. They were cautious, always waiting to see if the strangers would once again emerge from the swirling snow. But after several months with no sign of them, a small party was dispatched to return to their old camp. In the hurry of their escape, they'd left important supplies and resources behind and the strangers had had plenty of time to move on. Silence weighed heavy on the camp when they arrived. For the most part, everything was just as they left it. The igloos were intact, if a little worn by the wind, and swept by drifts of snow. It was clear no one had lived there for a long time. The creatures must have left not long after they had, they thought until, that is, they looked inside of the newest igloo. Under light, small drifts of snow were bodies, eight or nine bodies. One or two had clearly frozen to death, but the others, those had been hacked and mangled and chewed. Bones had been stripped clean in places, Ragged hunks of flesh peeled away with iron knives, and judging by the anguished expressions frozen on some of their faces, not all of them had been dead when it happened. Strangest of all, perhaps, was the pile of cooked seal meat, frozen solid but still sitting untouched where the Inuit had placed it months before. These strange men, it seems, if that's what they had been, had preferred to murder and eat each other. If you're familiar with the history of the North, I'm sure it comes as no surprise that the strangers in this story were, in fact, men from the famously doomed Franklin Expedition. The survivors of the ships HMS Terror and Erebus which had become trapped in the Arctic ice and who had left a trail of death and cannibalism behind them as they tried to escape their frozen fate. A fate, it seems, that was sealed before they ever stepped foot in the Inuit camp. Our first story for the evening comes from, well, would you look at that? We have one more story this week from our good friend, Christy Nogle Christy Nogle is a member of the Horror Writers Association and Codex Writers Group. She teaches college composition and lives in Boise, Idaho, with her partner Jim and their dogs and cats. You can read more recent and upcoming stories at Vastarian, Synth, an anthology of dark science fiction, and Flame Tree Publishing's American Gothic Anthology. You can read more of her work at ChristyNogle.com or follow her on Twitter at ChristyNogle. Children of the Night, join me. For Christy Nogle's You Will Make Me Strong Again. First published at Freeze Frame Fiction, March 2019.
0: Four nights are gone by on the island before I begin to see you. My consciousness shudders, falls back into place. It's just dusk. We're on the beach making sandcastles. What did you eat? You look green, you say. You are ten, twelve, dressed in a saggy yellow bikini and torn white t-shirt. You're using a big gulp cup to make towers on your castle. My legs crossed in front of me, torso slumped. I'm pressing down a channel of wet sand to make a moat. My body is my body. No magical euthening for me. I'm skinny and dehydrated. Crepe creased. Shiny with dead skin. I said, what did you eat? You say. It was... a coconut, I say. I crawl back to the tide pool and get a handful of water. It will take hours to fill the moat this way, which is good. It wasn't. Because coconuts aren't pink or sickle-shaped. Coconuts have hairy skins, not spines. It wasn't the kind you get at the store. But it was a coconut. It tasted like coconut, I say. I look up at you, but you are gone. The water inside them was heaven, I say. And there had not been one coconut. There had been dozens. And I'd spilled some of the water back out into the beach. But not all of it. Some of the water was still inside me, making me strong. The tough yellow coconut meat was inside me, making me warm. It would keep me warm all night. Six days are gone by before I see you in the morning light. We swim together and walk the beach. I haven't found anything new in days, but you do. You show me where to find two bottles of water, a pack of peanuts, a hairbrush. I brush my hair for the rest of the morning. Pretend it's you doing it for me. The hair's coated in grease and salt. Sticky. You tell me it's never looked so healthy. It's becoming something new. I braid it and tie the braid in a complicated knot. Like a winsome mermaid, you say. You don't come with me when I go to find food. There is plenty to eat now. The pink coconuts, and something like a clam. Crabs, greens if I go deeper inland. Berries, I don't dare touch. I feel thirsty sometimes, but it's not my body's thirst. It's the nostalgic kind. The thirst for a big gulp. Thirst for a frosted glass of beer. I pass the heap of scrub concealing your body, the nest, on my way back to the beach. I try to avoid this place, but the island is small. I come to it from different angles, unexpected, and I jump each time. I don't look, don't see that your arm has dropped out of the nest, don't see the spiders crawl across your discolored hand, don't see how the bodies under yours have softened, shifted spilled out, don't see the first showing of cracked bone. We were going to have such a good time, I say back at the beach. What do you mean? You say. You're in your 20s, svelte but awkward, doing your yoga poses. You have no balance. You know, dance, hang out by the pool, Maybe meet some sexy strangers, I say. We didn't ever get there, you say. I thought we did. No, you're right. We got there. Our vacation destination. We got there six or eight times in our lives. We got there. Just not this time. You're right, I say. We were lucky. Are lucky, you say. You try that move with the leg outstretched behind you, arms pointed forward, and fall on your face. Roll in the sand and laugh. I never see you at night. At night, I make up my own nest. It's built of clothes and sand and scrub, just like yours. I think I won't sleep. Every night I think that. But sleep comes hard and quick. I wake to another warm morning, sand and spit on the side of my face. I never see you at night, until I do. It's the other you, twisted and torn. You guide the others away from me, the group of you clawing up out of your nest. It is midnight, or something like that. All of you lurching up and out and going deeper inland, away from me. Going after what? I don't know. I should be sleeping. I thought I was sleeping. But I wasn't. I was watching that spot for movement. Maybe I caused you to wake with my watching. The days are formless. I don't know how many have gone by. You must sleep all day now. You're never with me. I eat what I can, but it's getting harder to keep things down. I stop at your nest. Animals have torn it over these nights, and some are still here, too brazen to scatter. They circle and slide underneath. I look at you for the first time. The purple and blue and the green and the pink of what lies there. The shimmery movement, all wondrous, like a sunset crossed by flocks of birds. My own limbs have grown as purple as yours. I am cold all the time. You don't come near me until you do. At midnight, you claw up out of the nest, and this time seem to catch my scent on the air. I see you stop and turn, you and your crew. I've been watching that spot. I thought I'd been sleeping. You come to me quicker than anything, all of you rushing over rocks and sand. You are here at my side, Kneeling, the others hang back. I don't know them. My pulse, at the sight of you, rises, then falls in a rush, like going over a waterfall. You are holding out your hand to me. You are real, and you are beautiful.
3: That was Christy Nogles You will make me strong again as read by Heather Thomas Heather Thomas is a jewelry expert by day and master of none by night dabbling in costuming art music writing and narration She is a lifelong fan of all things horror and enjoys reading stories and novels to her friends and family when they let her She lives in Denver Colorado with her husband and spoiled rotten cat, Oni. Thank you, Heather.
0: one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
3: Our second story this evening comes from Frank Oretto. Frank Oretto is a writer of weird fiction living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His stories have appeared or are upcoming in Unnerving, the Corpus Press anthology series In Darkness, Delight, and Pseudopod. When not telling stories, he spends his time creating elaborate meals for his wife and many hungry children. You can follow his exploits, both literary and culinary, on Facebook at FrankIsWriting or on Twitter at Frank Oretto. Links are in the show notes. Listen with me, children of the night, to Frank Oretto's All God's Creatures Got Reasons, first published in Hinnom magazine.
4: The heavy set man in the red tank top did not look like a monster. He squatted in front of the stroller and waved at the child inside. The young mother, a pretty woman in a green blouse, smiled with pride. Across the street, Lonnie Phelps took in the scene from where he sat in front of Java Jive. Mighty nice kid you got there, ma'am, he said, filling in the unheard dialogue. The kid did look cute from What Lonnie could see, little sailor hat peeking from the stroller, probably only a bit older than my Ryan. Lonnie sipped his coffee. When he looked back up, Tanktop was holding the baby. He had a big grin on his face, but the mother wasn't smiling anymore. She put her hands out to take the child back, but Tanktop ignored her. What the hell? asked Lonnie. The mom put a hand on Tanktop's forearm, her mouth moving fast. Give back the baby. Lonnie willed the action from where he sat, but his thoughts were no more effective than the mother's words. Tanktop winked at the woman. It was that slow kind of wink where you get your whole face involved, a a get-a-load-of-me sort of wink. Lonnie could feel the teasing contempt. Then the man opened his mouth wider than should have been possible and shoved the crying baby's entire head inside. The mother screamed and grabbed at the baby's flailing legs, but the man in the tank top whirled away. One heavy arm lashed out at the woman while the other shoved the child further into his mouth. His lips and jaws stretched wider to accommodate the narrow shoulders. Lonnie ran across the street, scene details popping in his mind like flashbulbs. A stroller turned on its side, a bottle of formula rolling toward the traffic. The baby-eater now lay on the sidewalk in a fetal position, protecting his meal from the horrified onlookers. A single leg protruded from the man's mouth, a tiny blue sock hanging half off the foot. Lonnie reached the sidewalk with no idea how he could help. He pushed through the growing crowd. The mother clawed bloody gouges in the baby-eater's face. A bike messenger kicked the man, yelling, Stop it, dude! each time his worn timberland connected. As Lonnie got close, the baby-eater rolled and scrambled back from the crowd on bleeding elbows until he had pressed himself against the wall of Pizzasola. Between his wide, yellowed teeth poked five pink toes, all that remained of the child. Tanktop pushed them into his mouth. His hand disappeared up to his forearm, tamping down his obscene meal. Lonnie could hear the wet, rhythmic sound of the man's swallowing. Lonnie grabbed the man beneath the armpits and hauled him to his feet. "'You sick bastard!' he yelled. He launched his knee upward into the man's gut, hoping somehow to make him throw the child back up. "'Where were the police? An ambulance? Could they cut the kid out?' The man lurched forward. Wrapping Lonnie in a bear hug, he shoved his drool-slick cheek against Lonnie's. Forget it, man. I've finished. What the hell is wrong with you? Me? Lonnie bellowed, pulling away. The baby-eater let go and shoved Lonnie with both hands. Lonnie stumbled backwards straight into the mother in the green blouse. Watch it, she said. Lonnie froze. The woman wasn't screaming anymore. She just looked annoyed. "'Your baby,' said Lonnie. "'I'm so sorry.' "'What baby?' The woman raised her hands, palms out towards Lonnie. Her voice placating now and a little nervous. "'I think you must have me confused with someone else. I'm going to go now.' "'Wait! The baby! That guy!' A tall man stepped between Lonnie and the woman who didn't seem to remember that her baby had just been eaten. "'Dude! Hey! Back off!' the tall man said. It was the bike messenger, the one who had just kicked the baby-eater. He put a hand on Lonnie's shoulder. You been drinking, dude? The mother took the opportunity to hurry away. Lonnie looked around in a slow circle. The stroller wasn't on the street anymore. The crowd was gone. He spotted the baby-eater leaning against the wall, staring at him, his face still glistened with a pink sheen of blood and saliva. Fear lit up the man's face, and he looked away. Did you see that baby? Lonnie asked the bike messenger. The messenger shrugged. No, dude. I think you need to sit down. Did you lose your kid? Lonnie shook his head. No, I'm all right. He was not. Lonnie walked to a nearby bus shelter and sat. What just happened? He looked back through the shelter's glass enclosure. The baby-eater was gone. Lonnie's heart slammed in his chest, adrenaline still pumped through his system, making his stomach queasy. People walked by, taking in the spring air. No weeping mother. No police cars. Jesus Christ, did I beat the hell out of some guy for no reason? Lonnie leaned forward, elbows on his knees, and took a deep breath. He should call Janet. Hey, honey, I'm hallucinating people swallowing babies. Yeah, right. He was under a lot of stress. They both were. That's why she insisted he take some time for himself this afternoon. So what? All new parents are stressed, but they don't all have waking nightmares. Unless something else is wrong. Lonnie leaned back with his eyes closed and imagined a future full of CAT scans and Thorazine. I'll sit here for a few more minutes, get my shit together, and then call. Janet would say go to the emergency room. Lonnie wondered if they'd let him leave. Someone sat down beside him. You remember me? The voice had that slightly high nasal accent of the true Pittsburgh native. Lonnie looked to his left and saw the balding, sweaty face of the baby-eater smiling back at him. Shit! Lonnie sprang to his feet, fist-clenched. His breath came in painful bursts. He wanted to hit the guy, wanted to run, wanted to know if the man sitting on the bench was even real. "'Ah, damn it,' said the man in the tank top. "'You remember all right.' He rubbed a stubby-fingered man over his mouth, a mouth that was wide, but nowhere near the obscenely gaping maw Lonnie remembered. "'It's okay,' the baby-eater said. "'I saw you eat that kid,' Lonnie gave the accusation in a stage whisper, aware of the people walking by. "'No, no, I know that's what it looked like, but,' the man waved a hand in dismissal, "'it was more like, um, a magic trick.' An illusion. You get me? Lonnie didn't reply, too upset to answer. I'm Doug Kozlowski. The man held out a large, meaty hand. Lonnie did not shake it. Kozlowski shrugged. Yeah, I get it. Hey, I bet you could use a drink. Why don't you let me buy you one? Lonnie only stared at the man. Come on, kid. A minute ago you thought you were ready for a rubber-room Hilton, right? You're not crazy. This is good news. That got through to Lonnie. He'd been thinking right along those lines. Something tight in his chest loosened a little in his clenched fists open. You're saying it was some sort of joke? That's right. Something like that. We'll go have a couple of drinks. I'll explain things. Life goes on. Kozlowski pulled his barrel-chested bulk upright and walked down Carson Street. Lonnie didn't want a drink, but he sure as hell needed answers, so he followed. Irene's bar and grill was an old-fashioned place, lots of dark wood and only two beers on tap. Kozlowski pointed to a booth with high wooden dividers for privacy and hooks for your hat. Lonnie slid in. Kozlowski went to the bar and ordered. He came back with a bottle of beer and a tumbler of whiskey filled almost to the top. He set the glass in front of Lonnie. I got you a triple. Lonnie picked up the glass, considering it. No, he finally said. You tell me what the hell just happened. Okay, here it is. You know how I said it was like a magic trick, me eating that baby? Lonnie nodded. It's a little more complicated than that. Uh, You know, you really should have that drink. Lonnie set the glass down. Suit yourself. The thing is, Kozlowski paused an embarrassed smile on his lips. I ate the kid. You think you saw me choke down that baby because that's exactly what happened. At least you're not crazy. You said it was a joke. They were actors, weren't they? I'm probably already on YouTube's sickest home videos, right? You saw me do it. Did it look like a special effect to you? Lonnie's head began to throb in a slow, painful rhythm. He squeezed his eyes shut. Maybe, maybe I'm still in the bus enclosure talking to myself. Hell, maybe I'm strapped down in some mental hospital already. He lifted the whiskey and took a deep swallow. The amber fluid burned down his throat realistically enough. But where did the fucking stroller go? Why did nobody remember what you did except me? That's where the magic trick comes in. Except, not so much the trick part. You see, when I eat a kid, I eat him all. I'm not talking about the meaty parts. I eat everything like cosmic shit, everything. As for his smile, the nine months he spent giving his mom a heartburn, I even eat the Friday night his mom and pop put Marvin Gaye on the stereo and got it on. You get me? No, Lonnie said. You're crazy. What's with you and crazy? Give it a chance, why don't you? I ate a baby on a city sidewalk in broad daylight. No one's looking for me. The mom doesn't even remember having a kid. Why? Because she never did. No stroller? She never bought one. I ate that kid right out of the world. No one's going to come after me because no one knows it happened. I think you're screwing with me said Lonnie, sounding as unsure as he felt. Unless I'm just nuts. Fine, go at the crazy theory if it keeps you from pounding on me again. He looked at Lonnie for a long moment and then gave an embarrassed half-shrug. You know, this is kind of nice. What's nice? I never get to talk about it with anybody, the the whole kid-eating thing. Well, once, but that didn't really count. I got a theory, you know. Lonnie took another drink. I should call Janet or just go straight to the hospital. But he did not want to let go of being sane, not even if it meant this was real. You have a theory about what? Why you eat babies? He tried to speak calmly, but his voice broke. Sort of. It's more why God wants me to do it. You're blaming God. Sure, people blame God for all kinds of shit. Seriously, though, why the hell else would I eat little kids? All God's creatures got a reason. You think a buzzard just loves the taste of all that dead stuff? No. He eats it because it's his, what you call it, his nature. God's own flying garbage can. You see? The buzzard, though, he got no brain to speak of, so he never asks... What am I doing eating this crap? I'd rather have steak and a nice potato. Me, I wonder. So I got this theory. I don't believe in God, said Lonnie. The whiskey was taking effect, softening the edges of his vision. After what you just saw, I'd think you'd have a little bit more of an open mind. Lonnie did not have a ready answer for that. Anyway, here's my theory. Hitler. Kozlowski held his hands out in a see-what-I-mean gesture. Hitler. Lonnie shook his head. I don't think I'm following. Kozlowski sighed. Hitler, he said again. Okay, you know how Hitler is like the worst guy ever, right? All those sci-fi writers always have people going back in time to kill him by just making things worse. With me so far? Yeah, mumbled Lonnie. Hitler, bad dude. So these kids I eat, they must be worse. God gives me a hankerin' for babies that would be the next Hitler's. And I eat them. So why didn't God have somebody eat the real baby Hitler? Fair point. I got to assume, being a lowly functionary, I'm not privy to the big plan because if there ain't no reason, that means I'm some sort of monster, and a man can't live like that. You are a monster. I can't explain that other stuff, the baby never existing afterwards. shit, but you took a laughing little baby, baby Hitler. A baby, Lonnie repeated, and you ate him. You are a monster. Maybe God's monster if it makes you feel better, but still a piece-of-shit baby-killing monster. Kozlowski shook his head. You know, I met this guy once, like me. I mean, he did what I do. Another of God's monsters? Yeah, but he was a little like you, too. He didn't think there was a reason. I saw him eat this kid. A little girl, maybe six years old, pigtails and all. Fat little thing. Took for freaking ever. I talked to him afterward, like we're talking now. He tried to kill himself a few dozen times. Knives, nooses, bullets. He thought he was a monster and couldn't live with it. Even when he realized all that self-inflicted pain wasn't doing the job, he never stopped trying. It's bad enough to have to eat babies. No way I wanted to be like him. The poor bastard begged me to do it. "'Wait a second, Lonnie said, the whiskey thickening his words a little. "'What did he bag?' "'He told me I was his replacement. "'That's why I could remember him eating the little girl.' "'Lonnie's eyes widened. "'He straightened from his half-drunk slouch with enough violence "'to almost upend Kozlowski's beer bottle. "'He said I had to eat him. "'Then he could be done.' I'm telling you the sap was crying with relief at the idea. No fucking way I'm your replacement, hissed Lonnie. I got a kid of my own, for God's sakes. Hey, I concur. You can only take this fate thing so far, right? The problem is, you saw what I did, and you remember me. I'm pretty sure that means you're next in line for the job. I'm not eating you. Kozlowski nodded. Damn right. I thought we'd try something different. He lifted the beer bottle as he spoke and slammed it against Lonnie's head. Lonnie fell out of the booth, onto the floor. He touched the side of his head and pulled away a blood-smeared hand. Kozlowski knelt over Lonnie. His distended mouth looked like the open end of a mop bucket. It gave his voice a deep, hollow tone. Relax, kid. In a little while, it'll be like you never existed. The bartender screamed. Lonnie scuttled backward as the tooth-lined maw descended toward him. Hold still, boomed Kozlowski. He reached down, scrabbling for Lonnie's collar. Lonnie didn't know if he was crazy, dreaming, or maybe in line to become God's monster, but he knew he did not want to be eaten by Doug Kozlowski. So Lonnie opened his mouth and lunged. Something expanded in his skull. Bones snapped and jittered. It hurt like hell for a second. And then felt good, like a satisfying crack of the knuckles. Kozlowski's arm wedged in Lonnie's throat, almost to the elbow. The two men looked at each other for a long moment, and then Lonnie bit down hard. Flesh tore, and Bones snapped until Lonnie's teeth came together with a click, and he swallowed. Kozlowski's hate-filled bellow of pain joined the bartender's screams. You don't even want the goddamn job, you stupid son of a bitch! Blood spouted from his sheared-off forearm. Lonnie pulled himself to his feet. Strength poured into him from some unknown source. Kozlowski turned, blood sprang in an arc. He tried to run, but Lonnie had him by the tank-top straps. What I want is for you. Not to be here anymore, Lonnie said. Then he swallowed Kozlowski's head down to the neck and began to chew. Eating Doug Kozlowski took the better part of an hour. Lonnie ate with a compulsive efficiency, never pausing. As if once he had made the decision, he had gone on cannibalistic autopilot. The police came. Sirens blared, nightsticks rained down on Lonnie's back and head. He was sure someone shot him, but the attacks all seemed distant somehow, and he never stopped eating. Finally, there was nothing left. Lonnie took a deep breath and spat blood on the barroom floor. He stood and gazed down at himself, surprised he didn't look like a python that just ate a cow. A man stumbled into him, slipping on the pool of blood. It was a cop. He didn't even look at Lonnie. Instead, he motioned to the woman tending bar. You gotta clean up this spill. Someone's gonna kill themselves. The bartender looked from her book to the floor and sighed, I'll get a mop. As Lonnie watched, the blood grew pale, just spilled beer now. He stood at the bar, catching his breath. There was no blood on his clothes, no gash in the side of his head where Kozlowski's beer bottle shattered. The bartender smiled at him. What'll you have, buddy? Lonnie ordered a shot of whiskey. A single this time. He drank it slow and tried to think. Maybe if Lonnie had really been crazy, he could have pretended it never happened. No Kozlowski, no baby from before. He'd just had some sort of incident, a psychotic break. But Lonnie knew with cold certainty He was not crazy. He was God's monster. He paid for the drink and walked out onto Carson Street. The sun sat lower in the sky, but it was still a beautiful day. An older woman, Grandma no doubt, moved toward Lonnie on the bustling sidewalk, pushing a double stroller. Twins burbled away happily in the seats. Lonnie closed his eyes. Please no, please no, please no. Then he opened them again. The woman had passed him and was halfway down the block. I didn't try to eat them, he thought. But what if they were just good kids, future Gandhis? No, I can beat this thing. I'll resist it. Or go somewhere with hardly any people, an island maybe. It'll be a hard sell to Janet, but they could make it work. Lonnie's phone buzzed in his pocket. He pulled it out. Janet's name flashed on the screen along with a picture of a boy in blue footy pajamas. Lonnie looked at his six-month-old son, and a spasm went through his body. He had always been filled with love and pride when he saw Ryan, but now there was another feeling stronger than both. Hunger. Lonnie put the phone back in his pocket without answering. He looked down 10th Street at the line of skyscrapers rising from the Golden Triangle. He thought of the man Kozlowski replaced, the one who could not accept being a monster. That man tried to stop himself. Knives, guns, nooses, Kozlowski had said. Maybe the guy just hadn't tried hard enough. Lonnie didn't remember Kozlowski mentioning tall buildings in the litany of the man's attempts. He began to walk. The PPG tower looked to be about 40 stories high. It would do for a start.
3: That was Frank Areto's All Gods, Creatures, Got Reasons, as read by Scott Fulps. Scott Fulps is a narrator and voiceover artist. When not disturbing your dreams with tales of horror, Scott can be found in Washington, D.C., where he works as a restaurateur. He currently resides in that most haunted of commonwealths, Virginia. Thank you, Scott. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. If you're not a supporter already, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks. From ad-free episodes and bonus content, to shoutouts and merch packs. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put a smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales. You can share your love of the show out in the world too with some Tales to Terrify merch. Tales to Terrify.com/slash merch will shoot you over to our Tee Public store where we've got a great collection of creepy, custom, and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastiani, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we chill you to the bone with more Tales to Terrify.